some of them have achieved this like outsized wealth. But I never found that it was the thing that was the driver because, you know, in a funny way, if it was the driver, they would have lived very different lives after PayPal because after PayPal, a few of these folks had enough wealth where they could have just sort of like, you know, moved to a beach and lived out their days. They continue to invest, to support each other, to find promising new people, right? And then support them along the way. My guest today is Jimmy Sonny. Jimmy is an award-winning author. His previous book, A Mind at Play, How Claude Shannon Invented the Information Age, has won numerous awards. His latest book is The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. Today, PayPal's founders and earliest employees are considered the technology industry's most powerful network. Since leaving PayPal, they have formed, funded, and advised the leading companies of our era, including Tesla, Facebook, YouTube, SpaceX, Yelp, Palantir, and LinkedIn, among many others. I recently sat down with Jimmy, and we talked about how the seeds of so much of what shapes our world today were planted two decades ago at PayPal and changed our world forever. Jimmy, thanks so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you for so much for having me and for taking time to read the book. And, uh, and you know, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a short read, so I appreciate you doing this. Oh, my pleasure, man. The name of the book, folks, is The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. And, Jimmy, is there a book anywhere, anything close to this? Like, it, it describing, <laughs> no, you're describing four years, uh, I think it was 98 to 202, is that right? Yeah, okay. 98 to 202. Of PayPal and this amazing group of people that have shaped our world over the past 20 years that all came out of this PayPal environment. Is there anything like it? Yeah. You know, I'll be honest, like there, there are other clusters, right? Um, so in, in fiction, right, the, the cluster I've heard referenced most often is the Avengers, right? Because it's kind of like you got Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and Reid Hoffman and Max Levchin all in one company, David Sachs, the founders of YouTube, founders of Yelp. Uh, so outside of fiction, you know, in Silicon Valley, you you have Fairchild Semiconductor, Xerox Park, General Magic. Those are the famous clusters. On the East Coast, you have Bell Labs, right, which is like a famous innovation cluster. But no one had really gone back to my to my surprise. I mean, my market research for this book, Charles, was me going on Amazon and seeing if the book was available for purchase. Um, and when I found that no one had done it, it just, you know, you find things, they bother you. I, my theory of my books is always like there's an empty space on a bookshelf and like it just bugs me that this, that it's empty and I have to fill it. But no one had really gone back. You know, there have been books on Peter Thiel. There have been books on Elon Musk. And there have been books generally on Silicon Valley. Reid Hoffman has written his own books. But no one had gone back and really excavated this 1998, just this period. And the honest reason might be that someone writing about like rockets and electric cars probably has easier material to work with, but that's like the later life, right? So you, you're kind of like going back and asking these people about some of the most earliest things they did, some of the most, uh, certainly less interesting, maybe relative to space travel, but you know, everyone's got to do something. Right. That was what I decided to do. I just want to read something from your book, which really just will frame, will frame our whole conversation. 
And I learned so much from this about it. I do remember, you know, you, you mentioned um, uh, X.com. I do remember uh, advertisements for that. I remember uh, I had a bill payment service. I forgot the name of it. I think it was check free uh, that I was using mm. in the late 80s. And I saw that, uh, well, let me, I'm not jumping ahead yet, yet. Let me just jump. Let me just read something from your book, which, is, which just knocked me off my, my seat. If you, had, if you had used the internet at all in the last 20 years, you've touched a product, service, or website connected to the creators of PayPal, the founders of several of our era's defining firms, the creators of YouTube, Yelp, Tesla, SpaceX, LinkedIn, Palantir, among others, or early PayPal employees. Others occupy top posts at Google, Facebook, and Silicon Valley's leading venture capital firms. Astounding. Yeah, it, it astounded me that all of this talent basically worked at one company for this very tight, during this very tight window, and then they all went on to do this other thing. And so the thesis of the book, the big question for me was, well, what was in the water? <laughs> you know, this is like, this is like an even more elite group than like the Harvard, right? Or, or, or some tiny little like Rhodes Scholars. Like this, you, you don't even get this level of, of, you know, the small number of people and the huge things they did once they left. So I wanted to find out what that, what happened there, right? Because it, it's, it was, what they did after was so well covered. Someone had to go back and ask them what, what happened in those years. But it's, it's like some of them who left, the smaller guys only made two, $3 billion of their personal net worth. <laughs> and then you have on the other extreme, you know, Elon Musk in the hundreds of billions of dollars and everyone in between. Yeah. And you know, it, it's also interesting. The folks who, you know, a, a, another good example of an alum, you know, there's this website called Kiva.org. Uh, Kiva.org is a micro lending website. It basically took this very abstract concept of micro lending and it brought it down to the masses. It, it mainstreamed it. The founder of that was an early PayPal employee. PayPal was a, was a job that he took. He had a friend who was at Stanford. He got hired. And he brought a lot of the PayPal principles into the creation of Kiva.org, right? The woman today who is the CEO of Ancestry.com, and Ancestry.com is a site a lot of people know, they know it's advertising. Their mission is to collect, collect the world's genealogical records. She got hired at PayPal uh, in, the, in these early years. Uh, the, the, the ambassadors, the advisor to Arnold Schwarzenegger, like the communications advisor to Arnold Schwarzenegger for when he was governor, was a PayPal alum. Um, if you've watched a YouTube video, the three co-founders of YouTube came out of this group. And what I discovered in going back and talking to them is that it wasn't accidental. They learned things during this experience that they carried forward into all of those other experiences. So I had this hypothesis, right? Which was maybe you all learned something here as a part of this that you would carry forward. And it turned out the answer was, was yes. Yeah, and um, what, I, what I found amazing was you had such large personalities. Every First of all, the IQ were off the charts. So you had the smartest of the smartest people all getting together, and we'll discuss in a minute how Musk and, and uh, Peter Thiel came together and how um, Levchin, Lev, Levkin, am I pronouncing it? It's Levchin. Levchin, Ukrainian, Ukrainian immigrant. 
uh, how Levchin came, couldn't believe what he was, you know, just was number one or two guy with uh, Peter Thiel and, and his brilliance. They didn't think they would do anything amazing. It was like solving puzzles and problems. It was like fun. It was part of their day, you know. It, so, but, but what, I, what I found amazing, and I want to talk about this, was they saw with PayPal, they saw an opportunity. They saw a change of the world happening with the internet, like Jeff Bezos did. He saw the internet growing. He said, I got to get on this bandwagon. I'll do it with books. Did, when they saw the internet, they were able to connect finance, putting banks out of business the way we know them, all in one sweet spot and say, that's the 20th century. We're moving forward. Yeah, I would I would take a step back and say, you know, PayPal is really the fusion of two companies. It's it's Elon's company X.com and Peter and Max's company Confinity. What you said about seeing the internet as this transformative force in finance, that is definitely true for Elon. So Elon doesn't want to just have this company satisfy payments between you and me, right? Meaning we go to lunch, I owe you 20 bucks, I PayPal you 20 bucks. That was one small part of a very big vision that he had that was called X, that company was called X.com. And the idea was the internet is going to change everything. It's going to make it easier for you and I to do everything. So why is it that my mortgage has to live in one place and my banking has to live in another and my index funds have to live somewhere else? Why can't all of that come under one roof for, for a couple important reasons? One, why should there be fees if I move money around? Two, why should it take so much time? Like wire transfers and waiting days and this and that and, and delays. And then number three, all of your money being in those separate places also leaves holes open for fraud, for theft, et cetera. These databases are insecure in, in Elon's um, in description of them. So his idea was, I want to bring all, I want to consolidate all of that because what the internet has done is it's made it possible to do that. That's his vision. The Confinity vision, which is Peter Thiel and Max Levchin's is much, much narrower. And the idea there is you and I both have the hot device of the 1990s, on the Palm Pilot. Pilot. And by the way, I, I, I still have, I, you know, when I was reading this, I was a big Palm Pilot guy. And when you needed to buy a stylus, Staples only sold them in three packs. So if you <laughs> lost one, you had to buy three. And I got so many packages, I think, still unopened because I said, you know, let me buy a few. And those right. stylus and um, the infrared and all that. But go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry to interject. But yeah, it, no, it was, it, it was, it was a Palm Pilot. Yeah. vision. It was to take these Palm Pilot devices, these early per, you know, PDAs, and use the infrared ports so that if you and I are at lunch and I owe you 20 bucks, we can stick the infrared ports next to each other and beam each other money. So the two companies have actually very different visions, different goals, a whole different way they're going to make money. They chance into becoming what PayPal is today meaning that their initial success for both companies comes in the form of emailing money. And so it, it was the case that your description of the big, expansive, change the world of finance vision, that was Elon's vision for his half of the company. But it's fair to say that for Confinity, for Max and Peter and their team, the initial vision was slightly narrow. Yeah, they just wanted to get money from A to B using the internet. Email was the most, uh, you know, was most efficient and it made the most sense. And everyone had an email account. I think 
uh, you mentioned that at Palm Pilots, only 5 million of them. And yep. so if you had to be in a restaurant with your friends who also had Palm Pilots outside of Silicon Valley, I don't know how often that was the case uh, because, uh, well, you know, it was, it was, it was yeah, a very that, close system. It was a close system, but it's interesting. You know, you and I can say that 20 years at a 20 year remove, right. From the comfort of like where we are today at the time where they were, Palm Pilots were all the rage. Wait, hang on right? a second. Buy- I'm not, I, I had a Palm Pilot and I also had a case yeah. <laughs> and I had ACT, which was a contact management software. And I had oh, all go. of my uh, contacts on there. And uh, later on, when you were able to make phone calls, it was like, it was so buggy. This The, the, the Palm mm-hmm. Pilot was just so buggy. But I loved the idea of carrying everything with you in one place and being able to access it. You know, you're right. 20 years later, for someone who's 30 years old, has no idea what I'm talking about. But right. mailing a check, sometimes with 14-day holds, 10-day holds. Did you get the check? Did you deposit the check? Uh, the check would bounce. There were so many things. It wasn't anywhere near instantaneous. But I think the brilliance of these guys is they, because what bothers me, what doesn't bother me, I'm not a genius like them, is I lived through this, and I saw the same thing mm. they saw. But they came up with solutions, and I saw problems. <laughs> and... You know, I was living through this, and I remember using check-free in the late 80s, uh, which was automatically paying my bills through mm-hmm. the bank because my wife, and I'll tell you a quick story on that, my wife used to sit on our bed, uh, Indian style, and have all of her, uh, all of the bills out in front of her writing checks each month. Mm. I said, honey, this got to stop. This is ridiculous. You know, you're <laughs> mailing. I'm just not getting it. I want to see what we paid. I found check-free. I think it was 88 or 89. And then we started paying everything automatically, and I saw the power of that. But these guys yeah. took it to the next level. They definitely did, and you know, and it wasn't easy. Um, it was they fell in love with the Palm Pilot technology, the money beaming, and they had to be, you know, they had to be pushed by their board, by friends, by advisors, also by David Sachs, who joined the team. And his line about it is, I wanted to put a bullet in the Palm Pilot thing. I thought this was the future, but it wasn't going to be the present. And what was going to work in the present was going to be emailing money. And so it was not that they were foresighted. They just moved very rapidly once they discover that people are into emailing. You know, it's funny you identified the bugginess of the Palm Pilots, because I went back and I looked at Palm Pilot for Dummies. Like, look, oh yeah, where, where am I going to find a Palm Pilot today? Like in a museum. Oh, I have right? one. So, no, no, I have my old one. It's, it's oh, literally, yeah. we saved, we saved, <laughs> my son saved all of our old phones and you go back, it's, it looks like a, it's a museum. It's like we have a yeah. whole shoebox of all of these old things. And we had the Palm Pilot and there was a, there was a handspring also. If you, yeah, you know, handspring. handspring. Yeah, the handspring visor, yeah, right? Yeah, my son had the handspring yeah. visor. At 10 years old, we bought him that. It was a joke. Yeah, it's funny. Crazy. So they, I was reading this guide, and it actually said that when the infrared ports debuted, they had this funny issue. If you held them too far apart, the beam didn't travel. But if you held them too close, the beam didn't work. So you had to have this like Goldilocks sweet spot for the beaming, right? And it was buggy as anything. And when I was looking around... The only real use case I found was this person who wrote this like lengthy piece of code for how you could use the Palm Pilots to play Battleship. But otherwise, like nobody had really figured no. out what you were going to use this for. They did. They, they created mobily encrypted transactions. 
And, you know, we can laugh at it today, but that is what Venmo is, right? Which funny enough is owned by PayPal. But the idea of mobile technology being the future, both Max and Elon could see that coming, right? One of the reasons that Elon is excited about the name X.com, the way he explained it to me, because that name has been parodied in the aftermath of all this. He said, listen, if you're on a device that's an index card wide and you need to get to your entire financial life, everything, x.com is only five buttons that you have to press as opposed to something like bankofamerica.com, right? Which is like, you're gonna get, your thumbs are gonna get tired. His, his view, and he was right, was that people are gonna be walking around with supercomputers super in their pockets. Max's view, which was also eventually proven right, was that people are gonna be walking around with supercomputers in their pockets. The mobile part of these companies' early history or the mobile thinking is probably just 10 or 20 years too early, but you're, you're spot on that they, they foresaw the future in that way. But the reality of the company became this much narrower thing, which was around emailing money. Right. You know, there's one line in here that um, that you put, uh, I forgot who said it, but it doesn't matter here, uh, about Elon Musk. When he articulates something, he tends to find the kernel that will appeal to a broad mass intuitively. And he's taken that to Tesla. Yeah. You know, it's one of the interesting things that I discovered in the course of researching this book. We tend to think, particularly, I think those of us who are not engineers, we sort of like look at engineers and we're like, you have some special knowledge that I don't have. You know, you, you know something I don't know. In his case, that's true. He knows a lot about physics uh, and about rocket engineering that I don't know. But what I found about him that was interesting is that his command of the language is really facile and, and elegant. Like he uses metaphors and imagery in a way that's very compelling. And so, you know, sometimes he does it for comedic effect. Uh, and it's like, we've all seen that play out on, on Twitter and elsewhere. But the interesting thing about him is the number of employees that I interviewed who said, you know, the reason I joined the company is because of the vision that he painted about us taking on Goldman Sachs or us taking on JP Morgan or us taking on the Federal Reserve. That imagery, that ability to paint that story I don't think you can discount that. I don't think we should underrate it because it is actually what allows you to recruit. It's what allows you to raise money. And it is what gives people a vision of the future they can get excited about. He does all of those things today. And I think we're too quick to say, oh, that's just crazy or no, that doesn't, you know, that that ability, that gift is a real gift. And I think we should see it as such. You, you mentioned in the book that he has people calling him to work with him and he has nothing. There's no company. There's no product. There's just an idea. But uh, they meet with him and they're just so overwhelmed with his ballsy attitude of, uh, well, copy the website, make it look like Schwab, use blue color. That's why they use blue color. He, he, his, his vision wasn't, you know, one foot hurdles. He wanted to create, I want to be as big as, I'm going to be bigger than Schwab. I'm going to be bigger than Goldman Sachs. And the most, one of the most amazing things in the story that's never really been covered before is that, that, that almost isn't in an early iteration of the company, almost the entire executive team quits between that period. And when the product is launched is basically 15, 16 weeks. So within the space of 16 weeks or thereabouts, he manages to get Barclays bank and a bank in the United States to sign up with X.com. They build a functional product. They hire a team, engineers, business strategists, and others, and they get launched by Thanksgiving. This is after he loses his entire executive team. He still wills it into existence. 
So this belief that a lot of his colleagues have in him comes from a very genuine place. They see it happen where he will say something, things will get executed. Sure, it's frenzied and people are working around the clock and a lot of people are tired and sometimes frustrated. But when an ATM spits out money four months after he says we're going to have debit cards, these people have something to to look to to say we can do this yeah. we can actually take on goldman sachs we can take on jb morgan it's not going to be perfect but we're going to get there you know you relate how they go on thanksgiving or so when they go to the atm and they're all standing there and he puts in his x.com uh debit card and out comes money and they all cheer it's like uh, yeah. amazing amazing it's one of my favorite photos in the book was shared with me by someone who worked there his name is seshu kanuri and seshu kept this photo forever and it's Elon at the ATM smiling about his, like he looks like a kid on Christmas morning and he's holding the cash and he's holding the ATM card. And I, and I think, you know, again, it's easy for us to look at this and, and look at the photo and maybe laugh or smile. But if you take a step back and think about the fact that this 20 something decided in the summer of 2000, that he was going to build a company that had a relationship with the bank so they could do credit cards so that he could do debit cards, so you could get cash. And then weeks later it was done. I mean, that's that's astounding. You know what I found also interesting? And I want to move off Musk because there's so much ink spilt on him. I want to talk about the other guys. Uh, just, you know, it's like a, it's literally walk into the Hall of Fame. There are just so many great players <laughs> there. Um, um, when, uh, when he comes up with the idea to make this happen, it's, I, I found it to be like, it, it wasn't such a, Big idea. It, well, I couldn't say a big idea. It was his force of will that makes it happen through all the adversities. And I think the fact that he's willing to put up his money, his own money, he doesn't care about that. He puts, he has $21 million from a prior sale. He sleeps under the desks like everyone else in a, in a uh, sleeping bag. He improvises. He knows coding when coding's needed. But what fascinated me and which permeates throughout his whole life is he first works at a bank that you put in here, which I had no idea about. He finds an arbitrage opportunity that can make billions of dollars with the Brady bonds and the defaulting Latin American debt. Figures it out, goes to the, his, his superiors. It was the Royal Bank of... Uh, it was a Scotia Bank. Scotia it was Bank of Nova Scotia. In, right, Bank of Nova yeah. Scotia in, in Canada. He says, here it is. And they say, nah, we got burnt with too much of other things. And that gives them the thing is, Big companies are slow and they won't innovate. Yeah, he, it's interesting to me that in so many ways, the Elon of today is the, is the Elon of, of age 19. So I had this really, the good fortune of meeting his, his first and maybe his only ever boss, um, this gentleman named Peter Nicholson. And Dr. Nicholson is this just like hugely like a big brain, really, really smart guy. And he meets this young kid named Elon Musk and he hires him as an intern. And, and by the way, just Dr. hang on Nicholson, a second. Just hang on. How did Elon yeah. get that job? He had oh, the yeah. balls to, to go ahead. You tell he it. He called. Yeah. He found a newspaper article about Dr. Nicholson, thought he was interesting, pestered, I think the reporter until he got his phone number, called him and basically like talked his way into lunch with him in, in Canada. And Dr. Nicholson, by the way, he like worked in politics. He was a big ish deal. Right. But he just, he, Elon doesn't know anybody. He's going to cold email, cold call until he gets it. I get cold call, not email at that time. So he gets this meeting, talks his way into the gig. Right. And Dr. Nicholson 
it was interesting talking to Dr. Nicholson because they've they've stayed in touch, but Dr. Nicholson's not anybody who who is, you know, he's he's a great mentor and that he sort of has pride in what his mentee has done, but he's not in Elon's business every day. So Dr. Nicholson had a bunch of great chats with me. And one of the things he said is he's like, you know, even at that age, you could tell this was somebody who was really precocious, but also just like really wanted to get things, like was really aggressive, like wanted to get things done. Meaning when when he came up with this proposal to like basically try to try his try their luck at this arbitrage opportunity, you know, he was really like gung ho about it. He was like, we have to do this. And he was 19. He was there for, you know, he just he's an intern. And so to me, it, it reveals so much about how his character today is is the same, meaning when there's a logical way to get to an endpoint, he wants to get there very, very quickly. And and again, I think that I think that's an admirable quality. I'm yeah. sure it makes life hard for some of the people who work for him, but he has a conviction that I don't think you'll find in American business. Right. Uh, you know, I had on the show Tim Higgins, who wrote the book Power Play, a Wall Street Journal reporter, wrote about Elon Musk and Tesla. And uh, I asked him, I said, how come the big auto manufacturers couldn't come up with this? You know, they had the capacity, mm. they had the production. He goes, because they don't innovate. It's a job killer. Mm. And Musk saw this as an opportunity that he could run, do an end run around them. And, you know, reading this book, finding out how we saw that from the beginning where banks were not innovative, uh, you don't need to come up with a, a, a you know, new mousetrap. Just your competition is lumbering. Just attack and come up with something yeah. better and quicker. And, you know, he even says, there's a great quote in the book about, he says, when you start out, your your idea is going to be mostly wrong and you engage in what in that quote he calls it recursive self-improvement so he says even when you do a startup you're you're mostly wrong at the beginning and you just refine the idea until you do something that is productive and creates value for other people because that is what a company is supposed to do right, right? and so and so to my mind the other this is sort of linked it's like there's a conviction about the future but there's also this sense that you're going to start out and fail a lot um, and, and that is a, is a piece of this too, is that it's not just that you see the vision, it's that you have a capacity to endure what are going to be multiple failures along the way. And I think part of what I hope the book does is, is illustrate that in terms that are more than just cliches, meaning people will actually see the failures that they face along the way, uh, whether that's operational, financial, personnel wise, but it's a very real thing to have to constantly fix, tweak and move very, very quickly, all while the, the, dollar amount dollars in the bank account are running down because you're not a company that has consistent revenue coming in. You are just trying to build a new thing from scratch. Right. You have a burn rate and every day you're there, we have enough money for five months. If this gets done in six, we're out of business. Yep. That's right. And he feels that really keenly, you know, and he has had that success with zip two and he sells it and makes some money, but it's not the case that he decides he's going to sit on a beach. He takes most of that fortune and invests it in his next venture. And so I think there's a risk-taking part of this that's also part of it. And I would say that what I just described, the qualities I just described about Musk, just to not make this all about Elon, it fits the bill for plenty of these people, meaning there's an appetite for moving very quickly. There's a rapid rate of learning. And there's a willingness to take risks that you wouldn't take in ordinary business, right? But then to just adjust, adjust as reality on the, on the face. So you know what? Let's go yeah. back to the beginning. It's 1998. The process for getting amazing people, they're really high barriers to entry. You just can't work and apply there. Walk us through that because right off the bat, they're starting with a subset 
of a subset of brilliant people who uh, all have kind of the same drive, same motivation, different talents, but there's a lot of commonality amongst them. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to look back at the recruiting because I went in and I thought, oh, okay, you know, they're, they're these people, they're so exalted, they're so successful, they're so smart. Surely had they had their pick of the like top talent in Silicon Valley. And it turned out actually kind of like the opposite. So when Confinity, which is Peter and Max's company, is recruiting, they're competing against Google and Yahoo and Netscape and like the big quote unquote big players in the of, of the internet. So in a funny way, they're actually at a huge disadvantage. They end up having to recruit people who they know through friend networks or through contacts or people they went to college with, not because that made for the best team, but because it was the only people they could actually hire and recruit were these people who they knew and were, you know, old friends. That has the virtue of self-selecting for a group of really smart, really talented people. And then they add some additional hurdles. One of the things that they do early in the interview process is they throw these really esoteric puzzles at them, right? So you've got two ropes, each one burns for an hour, right? How do you use that to calculate 45 minutes, right? Which ends of the rope do you light and in what order do you light them? Um, there's things like that, that, that became, that were so natural to them that would be not, you know, the thing that you, like, I wouldn't get excited about solving a puzzle like that. I think it would, you know, it might stretch my capacities. That was a part of the place, right? That would, puzzle solving was a big, big thing in the room. They, I found four years of the weekly newsletter for the company. Every week there was a puzzle. And what you, the only thing you earned was bragging rights. The next week I would look at like, I'd flip from one issue of the newsletter to the other. And the names of the people who got the problem right were listed like, as like, hey, this person got it right. And I could tell it was like, you'd see the same names over and over again. These are people who are clearly like waiting for the next puzzle, right? Um, but it was a part of the play. That kind of problem solving where problem solving isn't something you do because you have to do it. It's something you do because you want to do it was actually a part of the culture. Right, right. So what I got out of this was uh, Peter Thiel's amazing managerial skills and brilliance, which, uh, which really attracts people to him. He's, he knows how to put all the pieces in place. Yeah, it's one of the things that I think we miss about him, you know, because he, it, it's easy to miss. So I interviewed a lot of people who, you know, where Peter was their boss. And what I heard over and over again, almost like in an eerily similar way, right? Where I was like, at some point I had to say, like, are you guys all reading from the same song sheet? Like, what, what is this? And what they would say to me is, he's not the manager who's going to be talking to you every day and making you, you feel great. But what he is exceptionally good at is finding incredibly talented people that maybe the rest of the world disregarded for some reason, and then giving them so much rope, but setting very high expectations for what they could do and making them believe that they could do it. Um, so there was a person who, his name is Roloff Botha. Today, Roloff Botha is the head of Sequoia Capital, right? One of the biggest venture capital firms in the world. He's a big deal in Silicon Valley, you know, widely respected and admired. When he joins the team at PayPal, he's 25. He's a part-time employee, then becomes a full-time employee. And by age 26, Peter has named him CFO. And his board, Peter's board at PayPal says, you can't have a 26-year-old CFO. We're going to take the company public. And the way John Malloy, who's the board member, put it to me, he said, 
Wall Street's going to eat this kid alive. Mm -hmm. Like you don't take a company public with a 26 year old CFO. Peter pushes back and says, no, Roloff is brilliant. He understands the business cold. He's built the Excel model that basically drives the business. We have to go public. That's he's the person we're taking and doing this. And John Beloy said that one of his only regrets from the PayPal years is that he did not have more faith that Peter was right about that decision. Really? But I saw that decision repeat itself over and over and over again. The board says, you can't name Reed Hoffman COO. He's not the kind of guy who's going to be a taskmaster. He's really friendly. And Peter says, no, I need a COO who's a diplomat right now because we're starting to interface with all these people. Rebecca Eisenberg's an attorney. She's just lost her job. He brings her in. He makes her first chair on the IPO. And she says, I can't believe Peter gave me the, the kind of this kind of faith. Even people that were hired by Musk, Elon Musk, Peter empowers them to go do some of the best work of their careers. There is something about this. And I, I hope I think the book will capture the stories. I'm not sure I have any kind of grand theory for why he's good at this. But I think one of his talents in this story for this period is identifying people and saying, go, just I trust you and you're going to do the right thing. You know, earlier on in the book. Before he starts, I think about the time he starts um, his um, his hedge fund called Field Capital, uh, Ken Howery, a Stanford senior from Texas, sees goes over and chats briefly with him. And I, and I love the way you put this. The two met for dinner at a steakhouse in Palo Alto to talk things over. Several hours into the dinner, Howery was impressed, not just by Thiel's, Thiel's depth of knowledge, but also by his range. Howery returned to his dorm and said to his girlfriend, PETA might be the smartest person I've met in my four years at Stanford. I think I might work for him for the rest of my life. How many people, I, I'd have never, <laughs> that's just absolutely amazing that you meet someone that smart that just knocks you off your, knocks you off your, 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 knocks you off your chair where you say, I want to work for this guy. This guy's brilliant. And they've been, as so far as I know, working together ever since he had that reflection as a college senior. And so Ken Howery is highly involved at PayPal. He is highly involved and, and one of the first real leaders at Founders Fund, which is one of the venture capital firms that emerges from this group um, and has been involved intimately in, in, in this orbit ever since. So his prediction proved true, not for like five years, but for 20, 20 years. I mean, it's, it proved true, it's true for 20 years. I think that the other thing that I found in this story um, which many people I think may miss about him, but that Silicon Valley, people within Silicon Valley know pretty well, is that once he has taken one bet on you, whether or not that bet works out, Peter will go to bat for the person that he's invested in time and time again. So Peter is the, some of the earliest money in all of the companies we talked about from the beginning, meaning like all those companies that have emerged from this particular seed group at PayPal, Peter or one of Peter's like friends or affiliates are often some of the earliest investors. And Peter is some of, he's one of the biggest champions for these people later. I heard all these stories, like somebody would tell me like they have some idea for a restaurant and Peter had supported something they'd done before. And Peter was like, great, I'll, I'll invest whatever happens. Right. Mm -hmm. Restaurants like famously money losing businesses. Right. Um, he goes to bat for people again and again in their careers. Once you have passed a certain threshold where you're, you're in his orbit, I don't think that the that we that Pete, this side of him has been well covered in the past, and I wouldn't. I didn't know one way or the other. I didn't have an opinion. All I heard were things that were played back to me over the course of hundreds of interviews with people, where they said, "Boy, he placed a bet on me that I would not have placed on myself." Right? 
Um, and that's actually like the most remarkable thing is even Max Levchin at, in later interviews said, you know, one of the things that Peter did was he made me believe I could be a CTO, like I could actually do this. Uh, and that like they gave me enough confidence to get through like one more night of coding or like two more weeks of difficulty. I, I think of that. I mean, that's that's the essence of leadership. Where do you, where do you get his first money? Like he started this his uh, hedge fund, Theo Capital, and um, and it was a couple hundred thousand. Was that, was I reading that right? It wasn't too much. You know, I my understanding of it, and I didn't go into the early. So I went only a little bit into the early history of Teal Capital, which is the the first hedge fund that he starts. So Peter's story is, you know, he's a huge success academically at Stanford. He goes to Stanford Law School, is a huge success academically there. And once you get, once you do well at Stanford, the next natural step is you get an appellate court clerkship. He goes and, and mm-hmm. does that. And then you're, you're sort of, you're, you're headed to the Supreme Court clerkship pool, right? And that's kind of the, the high watermark of what you can do as a law student. He doesn't get the Supreme Court clerkship. And he has to decide then, as he put it to me and has put it in other places, he had a quarter life crisis. He had to figure out what to do with his life, right? I think fortunately for him and for many of the people in this story, he ends up going back out West to become a technology investor and his first investments. I mean, he's not anybody that people know, right? We're talking, we, we say his name today, but we have to remember this is like 1996, 1997, 1998. He's just a guy named Peter who has left the law and spent some time at a hedge fund, right? And is investing his friends money that he raises from friends and family. He starts to do some startup investing and it's kind of in that era, you know, uh, this is the dot-com, the height of the dot-com boom. A lot of people are investing in startups and Peter's one of many. But w- even within that group, you know, he makes investments. One of his first investments is a $100,000 bridge loan to a young kid named Max Levchin, who has graduated from the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. And that company that he invests in is the company that becomes PayPal. And so I can't tell you how much assets under management he had, but I can tell you about one of the bets he placed in this moment that proved to be hugely successful later. Uh, and Peter ends up becoming the CEO of that company. Right. He raised money from friends and family to launch a hedge fund in 96. So it couldn't be a lot of money, you know, and it focused on global macroeconomic strategy and currency investing. Two years yep. later, he looks for his firm and then he goes on. So it can't be a lot of money that he has. No, you know, which is, and, uh, and I don't, and to, to be, to be, to be honest, like, uh, I think he he would have he was he basically launched a hedge fund, but the funds would have been small because he wasn't anybody that people were looked at and said, "Oh, that's you know, right. there's your right. there's your next Warren Buffett." Like this is a person who like left New York hedge fund and law world, moved back out west, so no, and was he, starting to make his. He had no credits yeah. as, a, as a West Coast guy. He worked you know Credit Suisse. He leaves. He goes west. He doesn't have any kind of any kind of pedigree. They don't you know in terms of. Success in Silicon Valley, they don't know this. He didn't work for, you know, you know, Gordon Moore or anyone, you know. But I, I do think that there's this one thing that he has that people don't, that people will often miss. You know, you have to, you have to remember, he's sitting with Max Levchin when Max is 21, 22. Max has a really difficult time at that moment in his life looking people in the eye when he's talking to them. So I had this discussion with Reed Hoffman and Reed said for the first 45 minutes of meeting Max Lech and all Max Lech was look at his shoes and Reed just kept saying in his own head, like, look up, look up. Why won't you look up at me? Right. Peter meets Max and they bond over math. They bond over a certain competitiveness about math. And I think Peter recognized like this is somebody who's really talented, right? Like really, really talented. 
with Ken Howry, one of the things Peter said to me is, you know, Ken has the ability to be the smartest person in a room, but nobody thinks he's the smartest person in the room, which is a really good quality because he can be, he can get along with anyone, but no one looks at him and is intimidated by him, which is really, again, a sort of a superpower. With, with Luke Nosick, who's another key figure, he says, he, Peter had said to me, this is in my interviews, and he said, Luke's a visionary. And Max Levchin had this line about how Luke is one of these people that can walk around and he sees $1 bills on the ground, but they're only visible to him. And so Peter has this ability to actually get at like, what is the thing? What is your thing that's like, let's gonna, that's your superpower? And then more importantly, for a few of the folks, what they played back to me is that he would make them believe in that superpower. Right. So, yes, he has a hedge fund. He's investing. But there were a lot of people who were investing in startups at the time. I think the difference is that he has a nose for talent that is a cut above where some of his peers were. Right. Yeah. No, I think it's great stuff. I never saw any of this before. And he he gives such a a phenomenal dimension to all of these people uh, in this. And before we go, I I just want to touch on one thing is – this drive that they have, it's not a money drive, obviously, because they make a lot of money. What is it that they really believe that they're going to change the world every time they do something? You know, I think, so remember, my book is not, it's about 200 plus people, right? And so I think I would be speaking out of school if I said it was one thing. I think for each person that I wrote about, it's it's a different, it's like a different driver motivation. I think for someone like Elon, there's a vision about what technology can accomplish and what you can do with technology that he sees very clearly in his mind. And then the point is just affect that vision, getting to Mars, making electric vehicles great and cool and, and increasing their production. So that, there's a, that sort of thing. I think for someone like Max, you know, Max just says to me and has said at other places, I just like building companies. Like I, ju- I just, I don't know how else to say. I'm just a guy who likes to build companies, and I'll keep doing that as long as I can. Right? For David Sachs, I think you know he came into this story out of McKinsey, and he really got right away. Like, no, the point, like, we want to build useful products for people. Like, the whole point of this is like people have to be able to use this thing. So we got to ditch this Palm Pilot thing, which has a ceiling of five million users, and go to the email thing. For Reed Hoffman, you know, I think Reed had always wanted to become a public intellectual and technology and the kind of discussion around technology became a place where he could really move the world, right? He could change the world in that way. So money is, I would say, look, money, there's there's no denying that these people, some of them have achieved this like outsized wealth. But I never found that it was the thing that was the driver because, you know, in a funny way, if it was the driver, they would have lived very different lives after PayPal because after PayPal, a few of these folks had enough wealth where they could have just sort of like, you know, moved to a beach and lived out their days. They continue to invest, to support each other, to find promising new people, right? And then support them along the way. So I think that the motivation differs from person to person. So I think it's really hard for me to say, like, here's the motivation. Um, for Ken Howery, a great example. Ken's actually a, an Eagle Scout. He was uh, I think the only Eagle Scout I interviewed. Um, he has a really deep conviction about public service. So his he has become an he was named an ambassador in the last administration, and he wants to give back, uh, and he does. Uh, and so there's just you know the motivations are different, but they share hopefully some of the qualities that you and I just talked about, uh, a a desire to learn a certain competitiveness, 
Uh, and I would also say humor. I mean, my, my interviews with these people are pretty laugh out loud funny. You know, you, you've had the fortune of spending, I don't know, was it four or five years to put this book together or so? Yeah, it was uh, five and a half, five maybe and a little years, longer. Right? I'm kind of embarrassed saying that out loud, right. to be honest with you. <laughs> you you've spoke, you, had the, you really had the privilege of going to school on hundreds of people, very successful mm. people. What did you take away from all this? What did you learn for you? How it affected your life? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of one one way that it affected me is I broadened the kind of reading I do. I found that the people that I was meeting with were able to quote the Bible then could quote some tech thinker, then could reference like a movie from film noir in the 20th century, and then reference something from the encyclopedia. And I just remember like, honestly, like I, I never in my life had felt like the B student talking to A students, right? And so it forced me to say to myself, like, am I like, am I, am I reading widely enough? Am I absorbing enough information that's outside of the things that I'm like totally obsessed with? A good example is that Max Levchin is obsessed with Kurosawa's, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. He has seen Seven Samurai over a hundred times. It's like one of the great films of the 20th century. I confess, I had never watched it until I started this project, right? But his love of film, I started to make, like I made a list. I was like, okay, I really need to like watch. He's like, you know, this one of the Citizen Kane and like all these like major films. I found a level of broad-mindedness that surprised me. People tend to think of Silicon Valley as like this narrow place. It actually, like the people at the top anyway, some of the people I interviewed were culture, pulling cultural references from all over. So that was one thing is that it broadened my kind of whatever. The, the second thing I would say is um, we have a tendency sometimes to look at competitiveness as a negative thing. Competitiveness can bring out your best. And so I, you know, like I kind of started to reframe in my mind, like I met people who were competitive, but they weren't like viciously competitive. They were just like competitive and they wanted to do their best. I have a young daughter and now it's okay. Like I want her to win <laughs> and I want to make it okay for her to win. But right? like we were sort of like, I want it. I want her to have a little bit of that, that chutzpah, that drive, the sense that like victory is okay. If you can do it fairly and in an honest way and be a good sport about it it's okay to want to be the best. Right. And so I support her sometimes when she says that, cause I'm like, you know, I saw that in, in Max and then these guys are like, so that was the second thing. And then the third thing I would say is, you know, the thing that made this story work is that all the people we just talked about are so different and, and meaning like we talk about these people and they share some traits, but you wouldn't actually like pick these, like they are sort of like the Avengers. Like you wouldn't have constructed a team, but you wouldn't have known. I am, more thoughtful about people in my life who are very different from me and, and inviting them to be like, to call me an idiot and to say, here's what you got wrong. Because I think that that is what I saw in this story. It, it actually took not just a Max, but a Peter and a Max. It took an Elon and a Reed Hoffman. And it took the 200 other folks who were around him, all of whom had like very different personalities, politics, all of it. They were so different. I've started to think about making sure that the people in my life are not just carbon copies of me. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And I, and that's like a conscious thing. I think to myself like, Oh, you know, I'm so glad like these friends are so different than I am because they can call me on my stuff when I get it wrong. Yeah, no, it's, it's when I was reading it, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I was thinking of it uh, as a symphony. Each one played a mm. different instrument, but together they just worked amazingly well. 
Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't always harmonious, but it worked no, pretty but well. You know what? It, 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 no, it wasn't. And you do bring that up. But to have the passion to uh, work until, you know, you talk about um, PayPal on Thanksgiving 1999, where yeah. uh, Musk calls up everyone, you better get in here. You know, we need you now. Like, it's Thanksgiving. You know, I don't really care. We need a backup. We need this. He's been working here for, till since five in the morning. He's tired. Get someone else to cover. It, it was, uh, you know, it, it was just the way everyone moved together. It was like a wave. Yeah. You know, it just, I can't, you know, look, I, 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 you know, we'll sit here and try to dissect this forever, but there was so many different things. And I think even if you ask the players here, everyone will give you a different, uh, you know, a different take on it. But just looking at it. Oh, they, and they definitely did. And, you know, part of the challenge of the book is, I, I was I you can imagine the devil's choice decisions I had to make to cut stuff. in deciding what to keep and oh what to cut. Yeah, the, the, the amount I wrote is three times the size of the book you hold in your hand. So I cut out basically two books worth of material to try to to have this be something that didn't feel like it was going to be a better doorstop than a beach read. You know, no, I was just saying um, all the all the all the interviews. You interview someone, one of these people for you know two hours. How do you only take like you know? 50 words it's just it's just that's a i would never want to do that welcome welcome to my last half decades worth of yeah, challenges right wow, there we, wow great yeah okay folks the name of the book is the founders the story of paypal and the entrepreneurs who shaped silicon valley uh by jimmy sonny and i highly recommend it even if you're not into tech just if you're into uh being an entrepreneur uh, just being a business person reading this i got lessons here uh of how to be a better businessman how to deal with uh, people like you just said, you know, I, I picked the same thing as you did is that there is talent out there. And if it's like me, I'm hiring just carbon copies of me. Hard people are not me because they're going to fill yeah. the holes in what my, what my weaknesses are. I know what my strengths are. So I'm going to go to people with the same strengths as I am. I got to get people who fill, fill those holes and, 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 and plug in where I'm terrible at. And I, and I yeah. think that, you know, it's just a really fascinating book, really amazing insight. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, I really wish you a lot of success, Jimmy. And you, by the way, I was telling you at the top of the show before we went on air, your writing style is really quick and breezy. So even though the book is 400 or so pages, a little more, it flies. It just kind of, I almost missed my train stop this morning coming here. It was, it just, you just keep reading. It's a really well done. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate you taking time to, to talk about it, this level of depth, um, particularly for somebody who runs a business. You know, it's useful to hear that it's resonating with you because I want it to be useful for people. I want to tell an accurate story, but I, I do think that there are lessons that these people have in their heads that if you ask them to write a book, they might not be able to articulate it. Yeah. But uh, the fact that I was able to uh, get it out of them, uh, I'm glad that it's, it's resonating. Really great, man. Lots of success to you. Jimmy, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.